Welcome back to Forgotten Lakers. We're here tonight with a member of the Lakers 2001 training camp roster, Paul Shirley. Paul, how are you doing today? Good. I'm. Uh, that's such a such an interesting way to frame me because I don't think about that very often. <laughs> well, that yeah. Well, that's kind of the purpose of this podcast is to, I guess, it's for fans to talk to players that fans may have forgotten but not the players who may have forgotten that they were once a member of the lakers yeah that's what that's how i should introduce myself to girls what do you do well i was a three-week member of the los angeles lakers training room or training camp roster i it can't beat that i mean oh you can beat that that's not <laughs> well, very cool so uh can you t- to start off can you tell me about your new book um i've downloaded it on audible I actually okay. read, I read, can I keep my Jersey? But um, for this one, I downloaded an audible, but can you go ahead and tell me about it? Uh, so this book is called stories. I tell on dates and it uh, consists of the stories I tell on dates framed by the dates. Some of the dates that I've told them on um, <laughs> it. Uh, it was inspired when, uh, when I think I had gone on too many dates in a row where I realized that it's kind of slipping into the same stories over and over again. And at first I was a little uh, appalled at my behavior, but then I realized that basically everyone does this, not only on dates, but we all have certain stories that we tell about ourselves. We may have stories that we tell this week about things that happened this week that we kind of keep coming back to, or maybe about this year. Um, and in general, I think we all have stories about our lives that sort of explain who we are um, or help other people understand a little better who we are in quick fashion. Uh, do you find that a lot of these stories center around your basketball career? Actually, no. I uh, I think the problem with a story about basketball is that basketball stories or sports stories are pretty boring. Usually, there. I mean, if there's either, I mean, well, we won or we lost, um, and most people don't necessarily understand what it's like to play basketball at that level, so they don't relate to those. Um, most of my, most of the stories that I find myself telling about myself historically are from childhood. I grew up in a small town in Kansas and, uh, most of the things that I will tell people are usually a way to explain who I was originally or where I came from. I, I think mm-hmm. we're all prone to that, that we go back to these origin stories. The great thing too, about stories from your childhood is a lot of times things are much more vivid then. And so it's easier, not maybe not easier to remember, but they seem to stand out because uh, they they were very important at the time. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, listening to it. Was that your first experience also narrating? It was, and it was miserable at times. It, uh, I, my, so I have a, a speaking coach. I do a fair bit of public speaking, and it turns out she has worked with people who've done audiobooks. And one of the things that she does a good job of telling me constantly with both of these things is that well, just, you just got to have fun with it, which sounds very simplistic, but turns out to be actually pretty effective. Yeah. Um, and there were days when I went in with a right frame of mind and did have fun with it, but it can get to be a slog mostly because at that point, I'm just so tired of seeing my own words that it's hard sure. to, f- to feel fresh and excited about them. Cause I've, you know, I, this book took me, parts of four and a half years. It's not like I was working on it every day for four and a half years, but it's been on my mind. uh, And it's also inevitable as a writer that you're always going to be trying to edit yourself. So it's hard to stay in that mode of just 
of just sticking to what's on the page and not making little editorial remarks like that was stupid. I shouldn't have written that. Like that, I could do that better now. <laughs> what you learn from writing? Can I keep my Jersey that helped you write stories I tell on dates? Um, so can I keep my Jersey? My first book came out uh, 10, almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, and since then I, I was filled with hubris after that book came out in that I thought, well, this will, this will be what's next. I did, of course, go back to playing. I was only 28 or something like that when, when that first book came out. So I still had four or five more years of playing left in me. Mm -hmm. um, but when those days were over, I was then writing for ESPN about music. Um, I had started running a website for writers. I was writing for El País, which is a Spanish newspaper, about mm -hmm. the NBA each week, which was a job I had for seven years. Uh, wow. and in the process of all this, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just be a writer. I'm just going to write books and write online, and that will be that. So I spent uh, about three years working on a novel that, uh, that I thought was going to be here's book two and somebody will just give me random house will give me another big advance for this. And that'll be the end of it or just, you know, the second step. But, uh, but as you can imagine, um, getting books published is a little harder than my first experience, which was I wrote a blog for the Phoenix Suns website while I was playing there and random house called me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that second book went to the garbage can and I really had to kind of remake the way I looked at writing in two ways. One being, I wasn't really working hard enough at writing. I wasn't thinking about it like I had thought about basketball, which was it's something you have to do every day. It's something you really have to work at. Mm -hmm. uh, and secondly, I kind of realized like, I'm not going to necessarily make a living from selling books. I think I can make a living from teaching and speaking and running workshops and those sorts of things. But to count on one's art to make money might be a little silly. <laughs> So moving to your you're basketball, like, you're like, wait, so you're telling me this podcast isn't going to make me rich. What the yeah, hell? No. <laughs> I wish this is very much just a, a side project, but, um, you know, I've been a lifelong Lakers fan and, uh, just started this pretty recently, maybe early October, but you said about a little over a month. Okay. Uh, yeah. Are you, uh, are you, uh, what was the LA connection? Why are you a Lakers fan? Oh man. So no, born and raised in Dallas, actually. Mm, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, when I was little, Shaq was my favorite player. And uh, that was his last year in Orlando when I really started following basketball. Mm -hmm. and went, so when he went to L.A., I just followed him, and I've stayed ever since uh, being a fan. But um, David yeah. Stern's uh, marketing methodology worked well with you. Oh, completely. The uh, market the individual over the team. It was effective. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I guess you could say that, sure. But um, – no, it's been fun getting to talk to you guys, like I said, that people might not remember. And I also like to collect memorabilia from them. So oh, okay. you know, signed cards, jerseys, whatnot. And um, I've actually gotten into, I've been able to freelance write some basketball cards for Panini this last year. Oh, cool. But just Yeah, writing the little blurbs on the back. And I've done several acres. I got to do a shack, which was awesome because, you know, growing up, I collected shack cards mm -hmm. like it was my job. And I still have most of them. Um, so getting to write one for him was a real thrill. They didn't nice. give me any, so I've been searching for it on eBay, and I can't find it just yet. <laughs> Can you make up a uh, – I don't think there it, – it's, it's sort of sad, but I don't think there are any Paul Shirley basketball cards. I looked on eBay, like, 
today or yesterday for for one. I did not see anything. Yeah, it's uh, it's a real oversight because that's what the world needs is more yeah. than basketball cards. I do but, know that I am uh, I'm pretty sure this has been told to me several times, but I haven't really fact checked it. That I'm the second worst player on NBA 2K seven or eight. Oh no! <laughs> so I guess would the you have, who would is, you have been on then? I guess yeah. uh, I think I was like a, an, I don't know. I was either on the Phoenix Suns or I was a free agent or. Uh-huh. And the the best question of is always like, well, then who's worse than you? But I don't know that answer because there's no, I don't know how to find that out. Well, I, I'm a big 2K aficionado. Um, okay, I well have, maybe you're my guy. You're gonna be the one <laughs> who figures out who the worst player was on whichever edition of NBA 2K X this was. The 2005 Suns are a classic team that you can play with on NBA 2K18. So you might even be on it this year. Oh, I didn't nice. Know that. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it depends on whether they, uh, whether they counted it at the beginning of the year or at the end of the year. And I'm yeah. biased, but I think you should count it at the end of the year. <laughs> um, so moving on to your basketball career. So how did you end up at Iowa State for college? I grew up a huge fan of the University of Kansas. I was in it when I was in, I don't know, fourth grade, I saw Danny Manning in a Walmart in Lawrence and it was the best day of my then life. Yeah. I remember turning to my mom and saying like, what do I do? Cause he was my hero. And uh, she said, well, go get his autograph. So I went and got his autograph. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I went off to Iowa state, that, that autograph was still on the, uh, the cork board in my childhood bedroom. Now, there had been a little, some complicators in there, as you can imagine. If I grew up a fan of Kansas and then went to uh, Big 12 rival Iowa State, uh, I played at a very small high school, and so it was kind of assumed that my gaudy statistics were uh, something of an aberration. Uh, so it was hard to get much interest from big schools, including Kansas. But as my career kind of you know, finished in high school, I, I started to get some interest from some of these bigger places. And uh, at some point, we got a call from Kansas that they wanted me to come over uh, and have a meeting with Roy Williams, which was, of course, sort of the dream come true for me. In that meeting, though, Roy Williams uh, proceeded to crush my dreams and told me uh, (laughs) that I wasn't good enough to play in the Big 12, that I needed to face up to that, and that I should go to Davidson, which is a place um, where they had a deal kind of worked out, I think. They knew a man named Bob McKillop, who's actually a, a great guy, like, and had become really, we'd gotten to be really close in the recruiting process. I think, I never really knew if they were trying to do a favor to him or to just kind of make sure I didn't stay in the Big 12 in case I came back to haunt them or what the deal was. But mm-hmm. anyway, that kind of fired me up um, and made me say yes to going to Iowa State on a national merit scholarship where I was technically a walk-on. I had been, I'd had some trepidation about that just because you know there's I didn't know that uh, what standing I would be at Iowa State Um, Tim Floyd had said that was the coach at Iowa State at the time had said that he wouldn't tell anyone that I was on an academic scholarship but I didn't know whether to trust him so I kind of took this leap of faith largely because I was pissed at Roy Williams uh, Uh (laughs) and then went off to uh, to Iowa State on a nerdy merit scholarship So you're there for four years and go undrafted in the 2001 NBA draft. So what was the process that led to you getting into training camp with the Lakers? Yeah, so I I had redshirted. So I was at Iowa State for five years, which was quite the boon to me because I then started to get bigger as the 
the hormonal uptake kicked in finally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the summer before my senior year, I went to the Snow Valley Basketball School, which was a thing that the Portland Trailblazers ran in Santa Barbara, where they would bring in guys they thought would maybe be good enough to get drafted or to take a look at to work a basketball camp. And then at night they would have us play pickup and then they would watch us. So mm-hmm. I don't know if this is still legal, but it was, a- yeah. <laughs> and I remember at the time, like being thinking, Oh, Whoa, Whoa. Okay. Maybe I'm, I am going to be good enough to play as a pro. I'd always, you know, thought that I might, but that was kind of that first sense of, Oh, this might go. Okay. So then I went back to Iowa state where we had a pretty great, or I had a, great senior year where I averaged whatever 10 and 7 and we won the big 12 again and we were a two seed in the NCAA tournament and then things fell apart from there we became the fourth number two seed to lose in the first round so I guess we can bore listeners with the ins and outs of this process because if you're listening to this podcast you may be the only person in the world who cares about these things Um, (laughs) at back then uh, there were like I think there were three pre-draft camps there was one in uh, Norfolk Virginia called Portsmouth um, mm. or just out, it wasn't in Norfolk. It was in Portsmouth, Virginia. And then if that went well for guys who were like maybe on the margins, they would send you off to Chicago for another one. Then I think the last one was maybe in Phoenix. I got invited to Portsmouth with 63 other guys and they put us, they kind of randomly put us on eight teams of eight. All everybody there was a senior or a just finished senior. And we kind of duped it out. Uh, to, to for the for the sake of agents and other people who were maybe watching us to potentially draft us in the second round or send us overseas or whatever it was. It was very much a meat market, but kind of fun because I'd been fairly miserable at Iowa State, and this was a chance to actually start to enjoy playing basketball again. That went way better than anyone expected for me, and an agent named Keith Glass, who had mostly represented big tall white guys and when i say that you might assume that that means me but he also means that it also means like mark eaton size and uh he's he said wow you're way better than i thought which was a common theme in my life uh, yeah. everything and i signed with him he we then knew that like the cleveland cavaliers i think were fairly interested and there was a chance they would maybe pick me in the second round and that was kind of exciting cuz i meant i actually watched the draft and then yeah. it didn't happen so i went to to summer league with the Cavaliers. And again, that went quite a lot better than people expected. So the Cavaliers invited me to training camp. Mm-hmm. However, about four days before I was supposed to decide to go to training camp, or I don't know the exact number of days, they disinvited me to training camp because, wow. and I don't know why I don't, nothing had happened. Like I hadn't like, you know, pissed anybody off on Twitter because Twitter didn't exist yet. It just, uh-huh was one of those things where they must have realized and probably were doing me a service by not inviting me because it meant that maybe I didn't have a spot. So I remember vividly that imagine you're, you've just graduated from college and you've put all your stock in this idea that you're going to become a professional basketball player and you're living in your parents' basement. And I, I was whatever, 23. So I had a brother who was 11. Then I went off to a, uh, a flag football game of his in whatever September or October. So now like it's not only have you put all your stock in this, but mm-hmm. um, it's starting to look a little weird that I'm going up to my old high school to work <laughs> out. And I'm telling people like, I'm going to be a professional basketball player. I've already turned down offers to go overseas because I was going to go to camp with the Cavaliers. So anyway, 
when I left, right before I left for this football game, the Cavaliers called my agent who called me and said, hey, you've, not, you've been disinvited to training camp. And I'm like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? Like, this, I put everything on this, and now like, I have this mechanical engineering degree, which is great, but it's, it also is something of an albatross because my mother can't believe that I'm trying to be a basketball player. And everybody, everyone around me is like, you grew up in Meriden, Kansas. We do not produce professional basketball players. Like, be realistic. Mm-hmm. So I was in full-on panic mode at this flag football game. And then, uh, and then we got home from the flag football game, and my agent had left a message on my parents' answering machine said, hey, so good news. The Cavaliers, who were terrible, disinvited you to training camp, but the world champion Los Angeles Lakers have invited you to training camp. Wow. <laughs> so in one flag football game, I went from – being disinvited by one of the worst teams in basketball to being invited by the very best basketball team in the world. Wow. So you walk into that first training camp and what is it like when you get there and you see, you know, your coach is going to be Phil Jackson and you have some superstar teammates like Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant? Well, like it had gone well. I had gone to some sort of tryout with the Lakers, if I remember Mm -hmm. correctly. And Phil Jackson had liked me because I, I mean, as, as I alluded, I got a national merit scholarship and an engineering degree. So I was a little uh, more clever than some of the adults he was used to dealing with. So I could, yeah. I picked up the, the, the vaunted triangle offense pretty quickly. In fact, it still is, amazes me how people talk about the triangle offense as if it's higher math or something. It's so simple. It's just that basketball players are so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> to them. Like it's, when the people have talked about it, I thought, oh my God, this must be like some kind of magic that they're able mm-hmm. to like run all of this. And then you get there and there you can only do so much in a 24 second shot clock anyway. So yeah. like, obviously it's not that complicated. So anyway, um, I wasn't all that wowed by Phil Jackson because, you know, I'd had pretty good college coaches. I was fairly intimidated by Kobe Bryant to some degree, but also Shaquille O'Neal because people forget that like 2001, I think Shaquille O'Neal might've been the most famous basketball player playing at the time would you agree oh for sure I mean so 2000 he was you know he won MVP of the regular season all-star game and finals and then the next year was you know MVP of the finals again so coming into 2001 training camp I can't think of a more famous basketball player except I guess that was the year the first year that Jordan came back for his wizard stint oh okay Uh, yeah but I think like I remember so I I don't know why uh, Kobe Bryant took a reverse shine to me and would just was just, just belittled me constantly. Um, oh. But he, uh, so I tell people like all of the worst things that you've heard about Kobe Bryant are correct. Okay. <laughs> all of the great things that you've heard about Shaquille O'Neal are also correct. So the, the difference I could tell from my position as a, as an observer of human behavior was that Kobe Bryant was so insecure about mm-hmm. who he was and probably didn't have real emotions. Cause I think he's a sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Shaquille O'Neal was the best as illustrated by my favorite Shaquille O'Neal story, which is not a grand one, but mm-hmm. on my first day of camp there, it was media day. And I was determined to like put up, put behind me any sort of, shyness or apprehension that I maybe had come out of Iowa State with. At Iowa State, I'd always been kind of second or third banana, and I was like, nope, that's not going to work anymore. 
Mm-hmm. So um, I remember vividly that I walked up to Shaquille O'Neal and just stuck out my hand and said, Mr. O'Neal, my name is Paul Shirley. I'm here for training camp. It's nice to meet you. And he said, and there's almost no way that this was true. Yeah. Shaquille O'Neal said, oh, that's cool. I know who you are, which I thought was like the most magnanimous thing that a human could be or could do in that position. Like wow. he immediately put me at ease and there wasn't any sense of like, uh, I'm going to look down at you or I'm better than you, that, which to me, again, demonstrates a certain comfort and security with who you are as a human, where, mm-hmm. you know, this rookie from Iowa State is just petrified on the inside, whether he's showing it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and all throughout training camp, that's how he behaved. He would, I would see him wandering around training camp was in Hawaii and occasionally I'd be out like looking for some place to eat and he would just, he'd always like wonder, like, are you okay? Are you doing, uh, doing all right? Um, which is why if, uh, if I were to ever make $2 billion and Shaquille O'Neal happened to be destitute, I would give half of it to him. Oh, <laughs> that's so cool to hear. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys I've talked to have really great Shaq stories. You know, I think like Joe Crispin, who was in that training camp with you said for the, the first game he suited up for, he flew Joe's entire family out first class to watch the game. Oh wow! That's um, who? What? Uh, Mike Penberthy, who was also in that training camp with you, um, mm-hmm. the previous year, said like you know he was almost broke when he got signed by the Lakers, and Shaq took him out shopping and bought him like six suits, um, <laughs> other shirts and ties, just so he could you know look professional till he got his first paycheck. <laughs> yeah, that's Shaq was like one of those kind of throwback guys like you might hear about in the '60s or '70s in Major League Baseball. Another guy who was like that. Who I, as far as I can remember, did not play for the Los Angeles Lakers. I, the reason I said that is because as soon as I said it, I was like, what if I was wrong? Uh, So Kevin Garnett was very much like that too. He was like Mm -hmm. this, just very, he was hilarious, first of all, in a locker room, but he was also like an actual gentleman who really, I think, respected people who did things the right way and looked people in the eye and would take care of them if he, Uh, if he could. So did you do a training camp with Minnesota if you had that experience with Garnett? Yeah, yeah. That was my, my last ever training camp was with Minnesota. When oh, okay. I had, uh, when I had been – I had played for the Suns two years before that, and then I, then I didn't play the next year, or I played for a Chinese national team that was headquartered in L.A. while I made a TV pilot that was based on my book. Oh, <laughs> So, uh, getting back to your Lakers stint, you know, I was doing a little bit of research for this, and I found some interview you did, I guess, a couple of years ago, uh, for like some Lakers TV special. And in it, you said, you know, the first day that Kobe came to training camp, and when he played with everybody, everybody had to change their like style of play just for when when he was on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't tell if that was a good thing or a bad thing, or maybe it was a little bit of both. Well, it was, um, I, I do vividly remember that. That year, both Phil Jackson and Kobe Bryant were absent at the beginning of training camp. I think Jackson was having hip surgery or something along those lines. And I don't remember why Kobe wasn't around. But he did show, both of them showed up at, in separate intervals, and it did change things in both cases. Like, Phil Jackson is the most, one of the most arrogant humans I've ever met. And I think I caught him on the sort of downslope of, like when he was good in that, like there's a point with all people who are really great at things where they just start believing the bullshit around them. And he had long since begun to believe the bullshit around him. 
Um, so I don't know that he was a very good coach anymore, but there was a sense of gravitas that he brought that made things get more serious much more quickly. Um, and the same was sort of true with Kobe Bryant in a different way in that he was so athletic and, and just moved in a way that was so different from everyone else. Mm-hmm. But I think just the, the complexity or the complexion, sorry, of the game changed significantly when he was in it. Uh, this was, he was still pretty young. So very mm-hmm. young, in fact. Um, so he still relied a lot on speed, quickness, agility, and just the way he could like kind of get into the air in the middle of the lane and then figure things out meant that uh, the game was ratcheted up several notches. Mm. So can you describe what, uh, you know, basically just what happened the day you were cut from the preseason roster? Um, I believe we were headed to another preseason game in like Bakersfield or some glamorous locale like that. And that, that was supposed to happen that evening. I had gone, we had gone to practice and then I had gone over to the, so many hotels in my life. I can't remember which one this was, but it was down on Sepulveda in LA, which is where I live now. And, uh, and I was packing my stuff to go to the, the exhibition game. And, uh, I got a phone call that said, Hey, could you come back over to the practice facility? And I honestly don't remember if I was suspicious or not, but I got there and, uh, Dennis Scott was waiting in the, uh, lobby and we sat down together and I was like, well, that can't be all bad if Dennis Scott's here. Like he played, yeah. he played for the, War, the Orlando Magic and was good. Surely they're not going to cut him and me at the same time. But they did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, I was actually just in Manhattan, Kansas for a book signing. And I was telling a story about that day because I, when I got cut, I wasn't surprised because I was, I was moderately outmatched. I mean, I was, I was going to be eventually good enough to play in the NBA, but that was, I wasn't quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went to all the assistant coaches and said, you know, Hey, really appreciate this. Could you tell me what you most think I need to work on or what I should do? And they all had different, you know, Frank Hamblin said one thing and Jim Clemens said another thing. And there was some sense too, if they were like, you should just go overseas and make a shit pop full of money. But I remember Tex Winter, who's a fellow Kansan, saying, like, I don't, I don't know what they're doing. I think they, we should keep you. And, we, wow. again, whether he really meant that or not, I remember just being uh, flattered and also aided by, emotionally aided by this older man who um, just said a nice thing at the right time. Um, when that was finished, I went back to my hotel room at the Fairfield Inn or wherever it was and plopped down on my bed and started crying. Oh, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you can imagine when you, I mean, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know, I didn't necessarily think I would make the team for sure, but there, but like I was young and I was energetic and I understood the triangle. So it wasn't like, it wouldn't have been crazy if they kept mm-hmm. me around to uh, for sure. like, you know, bring me along or something. And then what, what is crushing about that is like, there's no backup plan. Uh, there is of course, eventually like you'll figure something out, but um mm-hmm gone from you're on a basketball team to you don't have a job and you don't know what's going to come next. Mm. So the one question, I mean, I've always wondered about this with guys who maybe are fringe NBA players bounce back and forth between the league and Europe. So when you like, let's say when you got onto the bulls or the Hawks or the Suns, are they just expecting you to, you know, 
go get a one year apartment lease, even though you could get cut at any second. Like how does all that work? <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's a weird part of uh, living that I know a lot more about than other people. So yeah, it, I, I, that's a good question in that most people don't think about that, but mm-hmm. imagine when I got called up by the Atlanta Hawks for the first time, that was my yeah. first ever call up. I was playing for the Yakima Sun Kings of the CBA, making eight or $900 a week. Mm-hmm. And I was living, I had my own room, pretty upscale, at the <laughs> Cedars Inn and Suites, which is a misnomer because it was a motel. So our, the doors just opened to the outside. Yeah. I had my friend Alex Jensen, who's now a coach for the Utah Jazz, and I had split the, the $50 to buy slash rent a 1980 Chevy Malibu from this dude who drove us to practice every day, who was also some of my teammates weed dealer. Uh, (laughs) So my assets in Yakima were half of a 1980 Chevy Malibu maroon and whatever clothes I had and a laptop use of a motel room. That was all I had. So we get on a bus. We we've played, and just stop me if you want me to accelerate through this story. We've no, played. Not- we've played the Idaho Stampede one night, and in the wisdom of the CBA, they've scheduled us to play each other again the next night, but in Idaho. So we've played in Yakima one night, and now we're both going to get on separate buses, drive six hours, and play another game in Boise. Mm-hmm. Now, to add to the complication, several of my teammates and I have been named to the CBA All-Star game, which, you know, is not if you're going to be in the CBA, you might as well be an All-Star. Yeah. Um, so the All-Star game is, is a part of this next road trip we're going to be on. So I've taken with me like a pair of slacks and a nice shirt in case something comes up. So... I've got with me now a bag with that stuff in it and maybe a backpack with my laptop. And while I'm in Boise, before we are going to play the the Idaho Stampede, I get another phone call from the lobby. I didn't have a cell phone yet. And it's our head coach, Bill Baino. He says, hey, Paul, I need you to come down here. And I'm like, oh, boy, what? I mean, surely they're not going to cut me from the CBA because I'm one of the best players on the team. But who knows what's going to happen? So he hands me a phone and he's like, I got a phone call for you here. And it's this guy named Chris Grant, who was an assistant GM for the Atlanta Hawks. He said, hey, Paul, um, we're going to sign you to a 10-day contract. So you need to get to Atlanta tonight. And uh, (laughs) as you can imagine, that was uh, pretty – happiness inducing. I like literally clicked my heels together uh, on my way back to my hotel room in Boise. Um, And so they had worked, so they had made the flight arrangements. I fly into Denver um, where oddly I met a girl who I later uh, spent a weekend with in Vail. And then, uh, and then to Atlanta with just my bag and my backpack and no real plan. Like who knows what happens if this 10 day contract goes well, then I'm in Atlanta and my stuff's in, in Yakima, who knows? So the, the 10 day contract happens and we're in San Antonio and the GM of the Hawks comes up to me. He's like, Hey Paul, love what you've done. You know, you're practicing hard. You haven't gotten to play a lot, but we just, you know, we feel like you've even gotten better since training camp. And so we're going to sign you to a second 10 day when we get back to Atlanta. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is really happening. Like I'm, I'm an NBA basketball player. Mm-hmm. We get back to Atlanta, and uh, 
the day I'm going to sign my 10 day, the Chris Grant and the GM have the contract in the locker room and they're like, Hey, just hold on a second, Paul, we're going to go in this meeting. And then when I come back out, we'll call you in to, to have you sign this contract. So they go into the meeting and then they come out and they're like, uh, bad news. And I'm like, I, I thought I was signing another 10 day contract. And they're like, well, uh, Ira Newble is hurt and he's got something that's going to require something kind of serious. So we're going to have to go sign a guard that we know can play right away. So, uh, you're going to have to go somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) So again, I'm just like, what guys, how did this happen? Um, which I mean, every professional basketball player and every, you know, worker in the world has similar stories, but when you're in the middle of it, it seems very serious. So, uh, so I, they're like, we'll fly you anywhere you want now. And I'm like, Oh, I met this girl on the way here. Why don't you fly me to Vail? So I went to Vail for two days and then I flew to Kansas city, which is close to where I'm from. Went back to my parents' house. All my stuff though is in Yakima and now, because I've just gotten out of the NBA, European teams are calling because mm-hmm. they're more interested in me because I've played in the NBA. So I end up signing with a team in Barcelona, but I got to leave in like three days and all of my stuff's in Yakima. So I had the same, <laughs> like, same dude who had sold us the car for $50, the like weed dealer. Um, I had him pack all of my stuff into like trash bags and send it to my, like express mail it to my parents' house. And I... <laughs> scavenged as much as I could. And then I went to Spain where the Spanish team, thankfully rented an apartment for me. And then I finished out the year there. Oh, okay. <laughs> that is quite a journey for your, I, well, I think you played like two games with the Hawks. Yeah. I played like five minutes. I got yeah. <laughs> five shots and played five minutes. There you go. There you go. Cool. Uh, so what's next for you? I know you got this new book that just came out and um, stalked you on LinkedIn a little bit. I saw you also teach at a police academy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, what, what else you got going on? What's next for you? I'm impressed. I've been teaching at, that, at this job for five years, but I am kind of surprised that I've been on LinkedIn the last five years. So that's amazing that I've been oh, yeah. since then. Um, as you can imagine, people in, in my, my world don't use LinkedIn a lot. It doesn't really have a lot of applicability for writers. Um, sure. I, uh, I run a, a nonprofit writer's workshop out here called Writer's Block. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very excited about it. We've been doing it for God, almost five years now, but the nonprofit part is new and we're just kind of starting to figure things out. It's a way for you know writers to meet other writers and get some structure and support and accountability. Um, and then I'm at work on my third and fourth books, actually, which are both fiction, one for young adults and one for grownups. They're in there. Uh, I'm working on the fourth draft of one now, and the third draft of the other is done. Very cool. uh, and I do a fair bit of uh, public speaking. I do some writing coaching where I kind of help people figure out how to build good habits for their writing because sometimes that lacks. Uh, and yeah, going forward, it'll be some combination of all of those things. I got one last question for you that uh, some Laker fans might enjoy. There is actually a website that has a 2001 complete training camp roster that I'm mm. looking at right now it has 19 names on it. How many of those can you name? Oh man. Let me think. Oh, that's a fun one. I, I thought you were going to say your name is not on it, and we're going to yep. end this podcast now. Yeah. Um, uh, whew, okay, I'm going to see. I'll start with the star. So Kobe Bryant, uh-huh. Shaquille O'Neal, Robert Ory, 
Mitch Richmond, who's a K-State guy, he's a good dude. Um, Brian Shaw, uh, Slava Medvedenko, we'll name the pale faces next. Yeah. Uh, Mike Pemberthy, Joe Crispin, uh, Peter Cornell. Uh, Ooh, he's not on here, but I'll take your word not. for it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Dick, Dickie Simpkins. He's there, yeah. Uh, Jelani McCoy, Devin George. Um, oh, who's this guy? This guy was the one who had a half contract. He had a half deal that year. He's dumber than a box of rocks and couldn't learn the, the triangle. You'll probably get to interview him, and then you can tell him I said that. Samaki Walker. Yeah. Um, God, there must have been – feels like I'm missing – oh, uh, Derek Fisher. Yeah. Um, it feels like there might – oh, Joe Crispin, who we talked about earlier. Or did I already say his name? Yeah, you already said him, yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. Uh, eh. Uh, sorry, I'm. I, this isn't fun if I just sit here and stammer. So I'm gonna <laughs> give up. So I'm gonna give up pretty soon. But uh, it feels like I'm missing somebody important who's older. Okay, I give up. Who else? Um. So there's Mark Madsen. Oh yeah, fucking Mark uh, Madsen. Yeah, uh, Lindsey Hunter. Yeah, fucking Lindsey Hunter too. Yeah, uh, you you brought him up in the podcast, Dennis Scott. Dennis Scott. Yeah, I should have. Um, Rick Fox. Rick Fox. Yep. Should have gotten that one. Um, let me see. There was one, I think. I wonder if this is the guy you're referring to that you said was dumber than a box of rocks. I've actually. No, that was Samaki Walker. I oh, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have reached out to him. He responded once and then never responded to a follow-up. So No surprise <laughs> there. Um, there's. I've never heard of this name before, and that surprised me just because, you know, I've followed the Lakers so closely for so long. But Ike Fontaine. Isaac Fontaine, yeah, he and I, um, he and I had to share when we were in. Where were we? I guess this was in Hawaii. We had to share a locker in a um, equipment room because we were the two like rookies, I think. Uh huh. That actually, it. <laughs> so my first book is called "Can I Keep My Jersey?" And the reason is that when I got cut by the Lakers, I went down to the training room where there's this dude, this very arrogant guy named Rudy, who's the equipment manager. Yeah. <laughs> Worst equipment manager in the NBA. Every other equipment manager is the best guy except for him. Um, <laughs> so I go to him and I say, hey man, can I, uh, can I get my jersey? Because I just got released. And he said, oh no, we don't, we're not a club that does that. And I was like, what? Yeah, you that's incredible. All of the money. And what are you going to possibly do with a Paul Shirley 45 jersey or whatever number my number was? Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, sorry, we just don't do that here. So I went back to the equipment room where Ike or Isaac Fontaine and I uh, had our lockers and I stole two pairs of shoes and <laughs> I got back at the Lakers. There you go. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, like oh, I said, last I- thing I have to tell you is, sure. Um, when I went off, when I went to camp, we left the next day for Hawaii, right? So we arrive in LA and then to Hawaii and I'm thinking, well, boy, this is going to be something, right? The world champion, Los Angeles, like we're going to see some stuff on this airplane. And what I saw on the airplane was not one, but two dudes reading Bibles on the airplane, Joe Crispin and Lindsay Hunter. Oh <laughs> yeah. I knew that Crispin was a reading Bibles major a professional yeah. basketball player. Come on. <laughs> hookers and vodka and cocaine please (laughs) 
Uh, well, thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate it. I'm going to blow through uh, stories I tell on dates pretty soon. Nice. So, Let me know what you think. Yeah, will do. Um, so best of luck with everything and uh, good luck with the book tour. All right, cool. I appreciate it. It was actually uh, it was actually really fun talking about that. I haven't talked about many of those things probably ever. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Joe.